Mr. Pop. Dark. When the little birds are nesting, and I listen to them too, there's two lonesome people in the whole wide world. That's me and the man in the moon. Hello and welcome to Miskatonic University Radio, a podcast exploring Fantasy Flight Games' Arkham Horror the Card Game. I'm Dane. I'm Dan. And I'm Ben. Today we wanted to share a fun conversation with you that we had with our friend Graham of the Shiloh Horror Blog and the upcoming Pallid Cast Detective Agency podcast. Uh, we talked to Graham about the, uh, the player-created ultimatums that he had created, which can kind of adjust the game's difficulty and make um, deck constructing a little more interesting for everybody. Uh, but first, we wanted to tell you about our experience playing The Circle Undone. We finally got around to playing it, and the we, we played the prologue and the first two sh- scenarios, The Witching Hour and At Death's Doorstep. And I I think we all were in a pretty pretty unanimous agreement of enjoying it. Um, so we kind of wanted to start talking about the themes of the set, I think would probably be most appropriate to start with. We notice that we're definitely back in Arkham, so we're we're back in the spooky kind of gothic horror New England town sort of thing. Um very far removed from the jungles of Mesoamerica. We uh we we should mention for people that are really paranoid about spoilers uh that we we won't talk about anything really specific we'll just kind of talk vaguely about experience of playing it and what we liked and didn't like sure yeah yeah so soft, soft spoilers anybody who hasn't played yet or or doesn't know anything about this this set it is surprise about uh witches and uh ghosts and spooky creaky stairs and things under the bed and there are a lot of <laughs> there are a lot of interesting um, mechanics that kind of align really well with these things, um, and they made it a pretty enjoyable experience. It's it's it feels like kind of like the Corsetti Arkham, but but with a a mystical twist because they kind of introduce a lot of I think it's mostly pagan things like like tarot cards and and rituals and and you know mostly witch themed things. Yeah, there's a lot of occult stuff. Uh, versus not too much cosmic horror type things yet. Ghost. Sure, I'm sure, I'm sure we'll get to that. But um, yeah, exactly. So I know personally, I always like the stories in these games. So so far, the story has been interesting because it's definitely it's definitely different than what we've seen so far. Uh, they definitely go a totally new direction with each one of these, rather than just kind of like oh, it's in a different town, so we're in Innsmouth now or whatever. They haven't haven't done that yet. So the story uh, seems like it has like. Uh, it seems like they kept up the Forgotten Age, where there's like several choices you have to make, and that will seem like they'll have long-lasting repercussions. So I'm excited to see how that's going to play out. And they started that off with doing the the prologue scenario, which I liked. I liked a lot. It kind of like it's kind of like playing like one act of uh, a full scenario, and you like start like uh, uh, I can't remember the Latin word. I was going to be fancy, but uh, in medias in medias res is that it? Sounds right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the where you're like already in the middle of the action. There's a very there's like two pages of story text to read uh, if you're doing four player uh, beforehand <laughs> to set up the seed, which which is kind of fun because it, it lets you lets you kind of like piece together like oh this is you know I, I'm missing a couple bullets because I shot them already at these things you know that type of stuff in the story yeah yeah so that's kind of a fun narrative thing. 
it kind of engages you in a different way because you're kind of thrown directly into the middle of the action of all this kind of strange thing, uh, all these strange things that are happening. Yeah, I like it. It gives gives a little more inspiration for like when you're playing through the game, like uh, explaining like oh, what you're doing with your resources and like where you're getting these items and stuff. It kind of gives a template for that. And it also seems like you know how you do in that uh, is going to have long lasting repercussions for the campaign as well. But I haven't seen too much how that's going to play out yet, but I'm excited to see how that goes. And the scenario itself I liked a lot because it felt like a little bit more of like a, a puzzle where you, where you like ha- you know everything that you're going to have at your disposal for the whole game, rather than like, oh, you have some amount of cards in your deck, you don't know what you're going to draw. You just kind of start with everything that you're going to get for the game, so you can really like control yeah. like, all right, this is how I'm going to distribute these resources, you know, this is how I'm going to bet this stuff in order to try to get, like, the best outcome you can uh, before, you know, your inevitable device. <laughs> yeah, they're kind of like disposable investigators, right? You kind of, like, know this going into it. The instructions say, like, you know, these people are doomed. <laughs> Just try to do <laughs> try to do, do what you can before you before you die. They all uh, are doomed as they're, uh, as they're basically... Yeah, like... which is a really cool way to start. I mean, this is a, this is a prologue, right? Yeah, and we, uh, I thought it was pretty cool too. I definitely agree with what Ben said about like the puzzle kind of nature of it. I do worry a little bit that, um, after playing the campaign, you know, seven or eight times, uh, which we won't get there for a while, but eventually I think it might get a little bit boring to redo the prologue over and over again, just because it is pretty much the same every time. But that's like a pretty good problem to have is, you know, it's not really that bad. So. Uh, and yeah, and I think um, I think so far they've definitely done a really good job with kind of blending everything together, the story and the the actual experience of playing it. Both of the, you know, after the prologue, both of the real scenarios that we played so far, I thought were quite good, just in terms of uh, doing interesting new stuff with like the layout and the the flow of the game. Um, the haunted mechanic I think is really neat, mostly just because I think one thing that the game was missing was having more interesting stuff going on with investigating and getting clues. Because for most of the game so far has just been, you just spend a ton of actions getting clues, it's pretty safe to fail, and it's just how quickly can I pick up all these clues. And adding Haunted, um, you know, you have like kind of different failure effects for investigating in different locations, and then some things on monsters or encounter cards as well. It just makes it a lot more risky and interesting, the decision of how to get clues and how to investigate. So I really like that. Um, one other thing I noticed so far, though, we talked about this a little bit. Uh, the encounter deck is really nasty and it's really heavy on will tests. So kind of going in a different direction from Forgotten Age where we saw kind of more agility based things or just things that didn't even have a test. This is kind of back more in the corset direction of lots of like test will four or five or something pretty bad happens to you. So I've, I've been playing Joe Diamond and it's, it's pretty fun so far, but like, man, those will tests are, are just really nasty. Yeah. I think it adds an interesting dimension to the game now where. Like you said, rather than it being just kind of a put on autopilot and get a bunch of clues, you kind of have to weigh how like failing is on different locations, you know, like with with how uh, the location kind of penalizes you with the haunted mechanic. And then there are also things that trigger the haunted mechanic and you don't even have to fail an investigation. They're like encounter cards that will do it for you. Or there are enemies that'll make haunted things spookier. So you have to kind of weigh where and how you'll be investigating. So suddenly like movement becomes more interesting for, for uh, seekers and uh, you know, kind of like where clues are becomes more interesting. So I thought that was an interesting dimension that they added as well. Yeah. Yeah. I like the haunted mechanic. I'm 
I guess I'm a little bit worried that it'll get overused a little bit too much throughout the whole campaign. Because, like, even in the first couple scenarios, there was, like, there were scenario there were things where, like, a location could have, like, three different things triggering when haunted triggers. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And and a bunch of stuff will happen, which was fine, but I don't know if I'd like it for, like, all eight eight scenarios. But uh, I do agree that it it, uh, adds another dimension to investigating. Yeah. I noticed it was it was pretty much on every location, right? Like, and in some of them, anyway. Most of them. Oh, here's a haunted effect. Here's another haunted effect. Here's another haunted effect, and they're like slight variations of of the same thing, but they're all interesting. I just like that you can kind of plan ahead for it, though, because you know what the haunted effects that are active are, and you know either okay, well, either I'm going to investigate this turn and I have this much chance to fail, or if you're not investigating, then the only way to trigger it is there's a couple specific encounter cards that you kind of learn about, and you can try to remember how many of those are left in the deck. So. It's definitely something that if you're really paying attention and trying to do well, you can kind of keep track of. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and it makes it makes that inevitable tentacle pull when you're at like seven intelligence to like a two shroud place even worse. You know, <laughs> it's it's still penalizing. It also definitely kind of pushes you towards if you're trying to make like a seeker or a clue collector build, it pushes you more towards having like high intellect and reliable investigates and a little bit less towards like just investigate a lot and hope it works. So that's kind of cool too. It's like a different deck building challenge. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it, it also works really well with the theme too, right? Like the whole haunted mechanic is, is it's, it's taxing to, to be trying to discover clues because the, the house or, or wherever you are itself is, is, you know, I don't know, like there's a poltergeist or, or there's, there's ghosts or it's, it's creeping you out so much that you're taking horror or things like that work really well with it. Yeah. It's definitely pretty spooky. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And as for like the, the, as for the two new scenarios, full scenarios themselves, I think I like both of the, both of them uh, a lot. I don't know about you guys, the new design, they use new, new design uh, for how both of them play out. Uh, I thought made it were pretty interesting. Yeah, so I think so far we're we're all interested to see where it goes. So stay tuned, and and we're gonna come back uh, for a mid campaign update after the third Mythos pack is released, kind of like updating you guys on on more of what's going on here. Yeah, but for now, let's get to our conversation with Graham of of Shiloh Horror and the Pallid Cast Detective Agency podcast. Hey everyone, Miss Katana University Radio here with Graham from the Kylo Horror blog and brand new podcast, The Pallid Cast Detective Agency. Hey guys, what's going on? So we're big fans of Graham's blog, and we wanted to take a little bit of time to shed some light on an article that, that he wrote a couple months ago, outlining the use of house rules, or as it pertains to Arkham Ultimatums. Uh, Graham, you had made these uh, a, a article uh, basically talking about your Shiloh Ultimatums. Yes. So you want to kind of just work through with us uh what they are and and how they will impact the game and things like that sure so we're using the term ultimatums here it is it's basically it's basically house rules right but we're getting the ultimatums from it's like a term that uh ffg has used in a couple of like challenge scenario articles that they've released and in some of the return boxes i think they have like optional ultimatums that you can use and generally they're there to make the game more challenging i think uh but in this case i've just kind of leaned into the house rule part of it and i've created a list of cards that i kind of modify how they operate 
usually trying to take a very powerful card and then kind of bring it back down to earth. Right. So you might be familiar if you've listener, if you've played like other card games, uh, you know that particularly in like a competitive scene, uh, they will kind of maintain a balanced and fair play environment by uh, kind of modifying these cards. And usually it's like a functional errata or uh, they're banned so no one can use them in their deck list or they're like restricted so they put a bunch of powerful cards on one on a list and you can only choose like one of those. Yeah, and so and this is what, what people will often call a metagame, which is kind of the, the general social system of people like evaluating which cards are, are the most competitive and kind of which decks are considered to be really good. And pe- so people talk about wanting to have like a balanced meta where there's a lot of deck building options that are viable and it's not just one deck or a couple decks that are, are are way ahead of the pack. And obviously it's very different in a cooperative card game that, you know, this isn't a competitive game, but there's still kind of that desire for a lot of people to have like a wide range of deck building options that feel like they're good enough that you can get through scenarios and have a good time. So that's, you know, that that's like definitely a, a cool thing to be working towards. Yeah. You know, there, aside from trying to balance a competitive meta, I think there's uh, several reasons why you might want to, kind of curb in the power level of some of these cards. One reason why I made the list was uh, to diversify deck construction, because there's a lot of cards that basically go into all decks that can take them. Right. And, you know, if you start, if, if the card pool gets too large, uh, and you start getting to the point of like, great, I'm going to sit down and make a whatever investigator deck, here are the first 14 cards that have to go in. And it's two <laughs> two copies each of like seven different ultra-powerful cards. Well, then how are you even, like, you can't even, like, creatively deck build around that. You can't right, try right. and go off on this adventurous deck building excursion to try to make some weird, uh, you know, idea work because... You have to include these other things. And people always, I mean, there's plenty of people that'll just say like, oh, I'm tired of using machete. I'm just going to not put it in my decks. And that's cool if, if, if you can do that. But this is just a way of kind of like codifying that and making it into a, um, like a restriction that everyone can agree on and say, maybe here's Graham's recommendation for cards, which if you kind of modify them a little bit or stop putting them in your decks, it will open up more possibilities to just have more creative, cool decks going on. Yeah. 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 Um, it also, by kind of imposing these restrictions on yourself, it maybe makes uh, deck building a little bit more interesting challenge for you. You know, if you sat down to make a secret deck, but you weren't allowed to use, like, Dr. Milan Christopher or Higher Education, now you're starting to break apart that auto archetype that seekers tend to fall into because it tends to be the most powerful thing. Right. So right. that could be a fun or interesting challenge for you to try to do, right? Mm. Yeah, of course. And then lastly, if you had a playgroup that all subscribed to these ultimatums, you might prevent the negative experience of you feeling kind of unnecessary or superfluous because there's another investigator who has all the strongest cards and they can just kind of do everything that the group needs it to do. Uh, there's a specific example I'm thinking of. We'll talk about it in a minute. But um, I the thing that comes to mind for me, I played a lot of D&D in college and I loved to subvert tropes and I would love to make a, uh, like a barbarian that only used ranged weapons or something stupid. Right. Sure. Sure. And like, that's cool. And I loved trying to get that character to work, but then there would be another character that was like a super min maxed, 
uh, wizard thing that could literally cast any spell in the book. And it was like, well, why am I even playing if the wizard can just do it all? Right. <laughs> uh, there's a, a, an old comedy sketch from a UK sketch comedy show. And I forget what the show's called, but the sketch is called the angel summoner and the BMX bandit. And it's supposed to be like a crime fighting duo that is made up of this like Gandalf type dude who summons angels and then a guy who can do some cool tricks on a BMX bike. <laughs> and they're like, you know, oh, we've we've got to save that woman. She's hanging outside of, of her, her balcony and she's going to fall. And so the BMX bandit's like, all right, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pop a wheelie onto uh, this platform here. And if I can bunny hop my way up the stairs, I can get to her in time. And then the, you know, the angel summoner's like, sure. Or I could just summon a horde of angels and they can just fly up there and get her. <laughs> and so then like the, the sketch is, is the BMX bandit feeling like totally worthless. Right. While the angel summoner can just summon angels. This is a, uh, if you're listening to this and you've never played third edition D and D or 3.5 uh, or, or things that are derived from it, like Pathfinder, this scenario of the BMX bandit and the angel summoning wizard is pretty, that's pretty much how it usually goes once you get above level, like eight or something. So yeah, yeah. all the time, all the time. Uh, so yeah, so really cool, uh, really cool idea. I think that's like one of the great things about this being a cooperative game is that because you don't need to have, exactly the same set of rules for everybody it's really cool that you can say like okay my play group we want to make things a little bit different we're going to try playing with these new restrictions and see how it is and probably it's going to be pretty fun and i think the number one rebuttal against this that i i hear is people say well if you don't like a certain card then don't play with it and <laughs> first of all that's kind of what a lot of these suggestions are anyway uh but you know a, a lot of times like you're like, oh, wow, man, I, I thought that Acidic Icar was really cool, but it is really strong. So this m might be a way for you to play with Acidic Icar, but not feel like you're wholly dominating as the seeker all of the combat that your group needs to do, which is, in my experience, how... What do you guys call it? The the mel meltomatic or something? Meltaroni. Meltaroni. <laughs> the Acidic Icar. But yeah, I was... I was really surprised by the pushback that you got like on the on the subreddit. I thought that this was just like a really cool idea for this optional thing you could do, but some people were like, "No, don't don't make new rules. <laughs> don't just don't play cards. Just don't don't make don't make it a rule." It's yeah. like yeah. Eh, it's it's not yeah. for everyone, and I'm not suggesting that yeah. everyone like I'm not sitting in my room telling someone else how to play their game. Like that doesn't make any sense. But it's an idea, and it's a like a I, I kind of saw some of these ideas floating around on some of the different forums and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And so I just, like, stole them and then put them all into one spot. Yeah, maybe we should get right into... Um, so one of the kind of... Several of the ultimatums from the, that you wrote about are kind of... They fall into this category of um, balancing a little bit this, like, really good seeker archetype of Dr. Milan, higher education, and, like, Rex a little bit or, or, mm -hmm. or some of the other cards... Um, can you talk a little bit about just like, cause this is something that people have talked about that specific combination of cards a lot before sort of, uh, how you made the decisions that you made about how to try to balance them a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, there are four, I have seven ultimatums on my article and four of them have to do with seeker cards. And, uh, that's my subjective opinion that I think seekers are the strongest faction because they are generally the best at getting clues, which is how you win generally is by advancing the act deck. Yep. And then all these cards on this list, uh, kind of break away, like make them 
unnaturally good at things that they're not supposed to be good at. Right. They're already supposed to be good at getting clues and drawing cards, which turns out are two really, really good things. So they don't, they don't also need to be good at other things as well. Right. right. Yeah, they're like Superman. So I'll just read off my ultimatums, and then we'll kind of dig into each of those cards for the, the Seeker archetype. Uh, so the ultimatum of entomology, uh, Dr. Milan Christopher's reaction ability requires him to exhaust on easy standard and hard difficulties. And Dr. Milan Christopher cannot be included in a deck that includes higher education on easy standard or hard difficulties. I'll get into the difficulty thing in a minute too, but uh, there's the ultimatum of student loans, which says the inverse higher education cannot be included in a deck that has Dr. Milan Christopher on easy standard or hard. There's the ultimatum of journalism. Rex's Rex Murphy's (laughs) reaction ability gains limit once per phase on easy and standard difficulties. So once per turn, if you're playing on standard or less, and then the elixir ultimate, or I should really rename this one. First of all, it's the elixir (laughs) ultimatum. Elixirs are something that you drink, but this pertains to the acidic ichor, uh, so you don't drink that. Um, well, the enemies can drink it. But it says that the strange solution, acidic ichor, require, or replaces deals plus two damage with deals plus one damage on easy and standard difficulties. So your base weapon damage with that is two instead of three. Hmm. So... Which you want to talk about, uh, Christopher first, Doctor Milan? Yeah, and i I really like uh, I really like how you kind of involve the difficulty levels as like a variable in these. I think that's a cool way to kind of balance it. But yeah, because for people that don't know, um, they're pretty soon after Dunwich came out, you could just play this Rex deck that had uh, Doctor Milan, Christopher, Higher Education, Burglary, and a bunch of other good cards. And it's really like kind of freakishly horrifying how many clues you can get <laughs> in a true. short amount of time with this type of deck. Like it's it's really just kind of insane. And you didn't even need that much XP to do it. You really only needed three for um for higher education. Right. So you could get this up and running really fast. And it's not, you know, it was a cool deck. Like it's it's not that there's anything bad about it, except that it just kind of makes the game a little easy and it makes it it really disincentivizes you from playing other cards that do the same thing. Yeah. Part of it is that Rex himself uh, just gains clues so easily. Right. You know, if you recall, his ability is after you successfully investigate, if you succeeded by two, you get an extra clue. Mm. So that does a couple different things. The cool part of that is if you have a card that says you can take an investigate action, like the bold investigate word, then you're also picking up a clue. So mm. with burglary, if you succeed by two, you gain your three resources from burglary exactly. and you also get a clue. And that's what makes it like pretty good. Yeah. Or uh, was it Seeking Answers is an event that gives you a clue from an, a right. connecting location. So with that, now you're picking up a clue right. off of two different locations. So you're trying to position yourself for the best shroud. And maybe you can cheat a clue off of a high shroud location yeah. by doing and that. And he's like the only one that can do that, right? He's like 0.75 or some, some random number that, that like just more efficient than other Seekers because he can win the game faster than other Seekers. Right. The the problem is that you're playing in three or four player. You get to like a two eye or three eye clue location that comes into play with eight clues on it. And he's like, cool, I got this. Uh, maybe he's <laughs> let's say that in this scenario, he has a uh, pathfinder and why not Leo DeLuca? He's got four actions. He free moves into this location. <laughs> there's there's eight clues there and he's got four actions. So he's like, boop, 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 boop. Eight clues. I got them all. Yeah. One turn. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not supposed right. to be that easy. Right. And, you know, as like a solo investigator, I think that gets curbed because most of your clue, most of your locations don't even have an extra clue anyway. Right, right, right. 
So maybe that's part of the argument for his design, but uh, it certainly trivializes the game up to a certain point. Sure, yeah. So with a lot of investigators, like Daisy gets a free action to get a tome, or Mark gets a free draw, or Finn gets a free evade, like a lot of their abilities are based around like one extra action per turn. Mm -hmm. So my Rex ultimatum, just limits his ability to once per turn. Right, yeah, yeah. And now now he's able to pick up four clues instead of six in a given turn, and I think that's good. And I think it's I think it's cool that even with these ultimatums, this sort of deck with like Rex is still quite good. And even if you're not playing both Dr. Milan and Higher Education, either one of those on its own, um, you know, is still definitely good. Like it's not that it completely ruins this sort of type of deck, it's just that it makes it not make yeah. the game way too easy. Yeah. I can't tell you right. the amount of times that I have been murdering things as a guardian or something like that and then i'll turn around and i'll look at my friend who's playing a seeker and he's got like 30 resources and there's like right and and he has been using higher education you know and it's like there's just not enough stuff in the world he's just like they get so much money out of milan it's it's bonkers yeah so so maybe we we talk about milan next then yeah uh there's a there's a, a specific tenant that i'm thinking of with Dr. Milan. And the, the concept is called the color pie, uh, which comes into play it, particularly in like card building or card games where you're building a deck. And the idea is that the game tries to draw attention to specific play tiles by play styles by dividing up the card pool into factions. And so each faction gets certain strengths and weaknesses, and that's called the color pie. So in this uh, example we're talking about the yellow slice of the color pie when we're talking about seekers and seekers are a specialized class like guardians and if you've ever played roland you know that roland most of the time is super broke and uh that's because neither guardians nor seekers are supposed to be good at getting money and the biggest problem with dr milan is that he gives you copious amounts of money mm. and rogues are actually supposed to be the money faction right Right. Survivors operate at, at low funds and um, mystics are supposed to have a little bit of money to pay for all their really expensive stuff, but rogues got the cash. And so Dr. Milan just totally flips that on its head and says, if you're a seeker and you're focused on seeking, then you're going to be super loaded the rest of the game. Uh, and you don't even have to put emergency cash in here anymore because I got you. Yeah. Like just, you know, hard mulligan for me, turn one and you're good. Right, right, right. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, so so along with that, I mean, like, he just gives really good benefits in general. Right? He gives you plus one intelligence, which is just really solid. That's exactly what you want as a seeker. He gives you a little bit of horror wiggle room. He has two sanity, so he can kind of give you a little bit more of a buffer for that. But, I mean, there's nothing in this, when you compare him to other uh, yellow uh, allies, it's like, like, some of them are good, some of them are interesting, some of them are good in different ways, but... Milan is just like, there's no reason not to take him, you know, like in any, anybody who can play him, honestly, like Finn even loves him, like more money. Oh yeah. Uh, Finn Lola, killer combo or Lulu. Is that what you call her? Yes. Finn, Finn <laughs> uh, with uh, Milan and Lulu yeah. is like, whoosh, so good. We, we really appreciate you uh, while you're on our podcast going along with all of our uh, ridiculous naming conventions. That's <laughs> uh, really, that's really cool. Yo. Yes. On Milan, this this is a slight diversion, but uh, could a different way to balance him be to limit how much money you can actually get out of him? 
Like I, oof, so I'm talking about a dead game, but I'm pretty sure there's cards that you like, you like invest for, and but you can get up to eight back or something. So maybe like, are you referring to like in Netrunner? If you, I maybe, maybe that's maybe that's what it's called. It was it's been so. <laughs> ben loves Netrunner, and he often makes references to Netrunner uh, cards. Yeah. So it's one of his favorite games. I, yeah, I I vaguely recall that uh, it, you know there, there was car- the type of card that you could be like, oh, well, I play four now, but it'll eventually give me eight back over the course of the game. Like, mm-hmm. could a different way to uh, Malter Milan be, like, uh, you play him, you put, like, eight resources on him, and then every time you investigate, you get a resource back. So he still makes you money, he still gives you, like, plus one book, but there's, like, a cap on how much money you get. Interesting. I think that's a, Interesting. A, another really good idea, right? So when you play him, he gets an amount of resources? That's pretty cool. And then you take yeah. them from him? Double his cost or something. I don't know. I, that was arbitrary, but, like, mm. a way that so he's still worth the money. Very cool. And... In addition, the, you know, he still gives the plus one book, so even after you've got all the money off of him, you still like having him, but maybe you don't care as much as if you kill him at that point. I don't know. Yeah. 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 That'd be that'd be pretty cool. I think that also just demonstrates the power of, you know, being able to use these these ultimatums however you want. You know, like your game group can can do just just what Ben said with with this different ultimatum for uh, Milan and or you can take the the uh, Shiloh ultimatum, which is the one where uh, he just exhausts himself and you can only get a certain amount of resources each each turn. Yeah. We have a, a joke with some of my old Netrunner buddies about a Damon card. Damon was a designer for the game, and a Damon card is one that gives you a, a benefit without any cap on it. <laughs> Which means that if you, like, lean really hard into that thing, then um, you know, if you pull off the one play or whatever you need to do, you can make, like, copious amounts of success. So, in a way, Milan is a Damon card right now because <laughs> sure. he, he gives you an endless font of money. Well, don't don't forget one very famous Damon card, Temujin contracts, which had a cap on it and still was ridiculously yeah. broken. Well, yeah, um, I mean that's that's just yeah. he was bad at math and the numbers were yeah. atrocious on that. But he he designed some really cool creative cards that we got to say. Um, oh yeah, but yeah, amazing I, ideas. I definitely, yeah, sometimes yeah. missed balance. So the other thing with with I mean we haven't quite talked about it yet, but. Um, Seekers are should be good at investigating, and uh, now they're good at money. They have a ton of money, so they can pretty much do play whatever they want to play. They have higher education, which we 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 talked about, which uh, uh, briefly uh, is a permanent card that so it starts in play, and then you can uh, if as long as you have five or more cards in hand, you can use a resource to buff your uh, intellect or your will by two points. And while that seems good already, it's very easy to have five cards in your hand because they are the class that draws the most. They have access to preposterous sketches. They mm-hmm. have access to cryptic research, cryptic lab research, assistant, yeah, yeah uh, lab assistant, all that kind of stuff. So now they can they can also draw a ton of cards. Uh, so that's never an issue um, to have more than five cards in your hand. So now they're really good at, at dealing with intellect stuff, right? And then willpower stuff too, right? So I'm sorry, yeah, willpower, you know, we, yeah. We talked about Joe Diamond and how he's got a two willpower, but I'm not concerned because higher education gives you such a good rebate on that, like resource to stat, you know, so you could spend two resources and now he's yeah. got a six willpower. Like, okay, bring on the rotting roommates. <laughs> All you have to do is get that higher education. It's fine. Yeah. Um, I want to compare higher education to Scrapper uh, because both factions <laughs> in theory are supposed to be poor. Both survivor and seeker are supposed to be poor right yeah and scrapper doesn't have the five card hand restriction but only gives you a one for one the hand restriction on higher education is pretty trivial and it gives you one for right, two right, right 
I, I know you were going somewhere else with uh, Dane, but I wanted to talk. I, I wanted to ask you guys about higher ed because my ultimatum is just you. I restricted it with Doctor Milan. Yeah, I did it up through hard difficulty, but basically it's just if you have Doctor Milan in your deck, you don't get higher ed because otherwise you basically get plus three intellect as soon as Doctor Milan comes down. Every res- like you spend one resource to get plus two. And then you get the resource back. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So just just restricting those two is all I've done. What do you, what do you guys think about that? I've I've seen some other people suggest um, making higher education you can only use it once per test, which definitely would help a little bit, but I think it would still be very very good. I've also seen some people suggest uh, making it so you have to have eight cards in hand or seven or something like that. Sure. Um, or one idea that I kind of like that I think I saw on the Reddit at some point was someone said if you take if you're going to take higher education you have to take amnesia as a basic weakness, <laughs> which is definitely one of the definitely one of the worst ones. Wow. And it interacts pretty pretty roughly with uh, with higher education. So yeah, I I like all yeah that's. I like all these ideas and I like the idea of just like picking whichever one seems like an interesting way to play. But definitely I think, uh, I think your, your idea is pretty good too, of just restricting it with Dr. Milan, because it's really the interaction of those two cards. Right. That's really, really too strong. It's like a little engine that never stops. Yeah. Yeah. I played a, um, Carcosa campaign with men. I was playing as men and, um, Instead of doing Dr. Lalan Higher Education, I went a strange route and did Quick Study and, uh, what is it, Archaic Glyphs okay. and mm, Newspaper okay. Level 2. So it was this j- janky build that was designed to, like, oh, I'm going to commit an inquiring mind and I'm going to, uh, I've got no clues, so I have plus four to my intellect because I have two newspapers down. And so I'm testing a 14 on two <laughs> and I'm going to pick up an, ex- an extra clue with this, the glyphs, I'm going to pick up an extra clue for every two that I succeed by. And so it was like my, I was trying to investigate in as few actions as possible right. to get as many mm-hmm. clues as I could and just advance the act in like one or two actions. That's really nice. cool. So it was a cool idea. Uh, if I had, so I would drop quick studies to get back down to zero clues so then I could turn my newspapers back on. Mm. Anyway, it was a ridiculous deck, but that means I wasn't on Dr. Milan. So Finn in our party <laughs> did the Dr. Milan lulu santiago combo and he Mm -hmm. was like an extra seeker for us uh and i think that's kind of like why that whole janky thing happened and so i had higher ed eventually in my min deck because we had a bunch of xp left over and i like rarely used it because i uh like just didn't feel like i had a lot of extra money and it was a really good example of like if you take out the one linchpin for higher ed it's not as bogus of a card like it really undercuts its power level, so that's why I thought maybe just separating the two was a simple way to implement it. Sure, um, yeah, but Dan, you also brought up a lot of like really cool ways that are maybe more interesting than just oh, you can't play with this card <laughs> if you have Doctor Mullen. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's I think any of these ideas are good though. I think it's just a matter of um, you know which one kind of sounds most interesting and coolest to you in particular. So yeah, but yeah, so we, we've definitely talked we've talked a fair amount about the kind of like. Uh, Rex, Higher Education, Milan, kind of like really good Seeker cards. You also did ultimatums for several other cards that are kind of popular and maybe maybe a little bit too strong in the sense that they tend to crowd out other options. Sure. So sure. these were, I think, uh, you had restrictions for Key of Ease, Machete, uh, Strange Solution, Acidic Icker, also known as Melteroni, and Delve Too Deep. Do you want to maybe talk a little bit about your thought process for how you selected those cards and, and why sort of limiting those cards opens up some new possibilities? Absolutely. So because we just talked about Seekers, I'll do the Strange Solution first. 
uh, acidic ichor uh, gives you three uh, charges, their supplies, and it um, lets you fight with a base six combat. So for most seekers, that's a plus four, a plus five to combat, which is fine because they start with garbage combat anyway. So it's okay. Um, but then it does, uh, it's a base three damage attack. And I want to go back to that color pie concept. And Dane, I think you were alluding to something like this earlier, but yes. you know, if seekers are supposed to be the clue faction and guardians are supposed to be the combat faction, then you kind of need to pair those two together. So seekers are doing the clue thing and they get babysat by the guardian who can always pull an enemy off of them and, and kill them. So the seeker can keep trying right, to win right. the game. So it's a very symbiotic relationship. And if you get the strange solution, acidic Icar down as a seeker, you don't even need another guardian. <laughs> right. You, you have now become the angel summoner and you can throw acidic blobs yep. of angels at bad yep. guys and they just fall <laughs> over. Right. And, and especially it's so, Seekers already kind of had uh, I've Got a Plan, also known as Doorknob, which is a pretty good one-off <laughs> way to do a little bit of fighting if you really need to. So that that to me is like kind of a slightly more fair, more balanced card. Right, right. Melteroni is just really, really, really strong. And it, one thing that I always kind of think about is um, there was a poll on the subreddit maybe a few months ago where people were saying like, oh, what would be the best class or faction to do if you were going to do a group of everybody's in the same faction? And I think the one that won, the one that most people thought of was like a uh, rogue or something. Cause, oh, cause they're so flexible, but it's like, no, I'm pretty sure seekers like actually the right answer. Cause you just get a bunch of seekers with Melteroni and ability to get a lot of clues. We've right. Dan and I did a run like that and it went very, very well. Yeah. You know, worked pretty great. I, I believe it, man. So basically acidic Icar is, is too powerful of a weapon for a faction that's supposed to be terrible at fighting. And th- that's the problem. And it's, you know, you can compare acidic Icar to like the other versions of strange solution or the other glyphs or like these other like side quest items that they get. And acidic Icar is going to be more powerful than any of those by a margin, but I don't think the others are necessarily bad cards. You know what I mean? Mm. I think the other comparison for acidic Icar is the lightning gun because it boosts your combat comparably to do three damage comparably with three right. charges. Yep. <laughs> But the lightning gun's balanced because then you can't even hold anything else in your hands, right? <laughs> right. And it costs six to play, which means that you can't even, like, start the game and just equip it. You know, you have to, like, use right. an action to get a resource or you have to, like, emergency cash first. You know, it's like, even that is limiting. Whereas this, like, you don't need hands to throw poison at people. Also, the lightning gun, if you want to restock the ammunition on it, you have to play extra ammo or contraband or something or use Venturer. Uh, but the Acidic Icker, you can just use the level three emergency cache and just load it up yeah. and uh, go to town. It's it's kind of crazy. Yeah. Ben, you've been kind of quiet. Anything to weigh in on in the Seeker stuff? Uh, I feel like you guys mostly covered it. Uh, the only thing was, like, I, I don't know why you guys are assuming you throw the Acidic Icker and don't drink it and spit on things. Uh, acid <laughs> breath, but... <laughs> Yeah, that's my only thought. It's not really a balancing issue. More of a that's some really intense mouthwash. That's probably uh, not uh, dentist recommended. <laughs> uh, don't, don't try this at home. That's that's. Uh, I, I would guess probably zero out of five dentists would recommend uh, gargling with a swig of melteroni. So I guess with the acidic ichor, I just I was trying to play around with a lot of the numbers, and I was like, can you restrict it in any way, or can you change it to? charges instead of supplies so you can't reload it and now it's still bonkers what if i just made it cost six he's still not using hand slots gosh <laughs> so i just changed the the number on it it's a little bit inelegant but i said it does two damage instead of three and now you're paying four xp 
uh, plus however you rate the extra task of doing the side quest thing uh, to yeah. actually activate these Stranger Solution upgrades. But now you're paying 4 XP for a weapon that gives you like plus 4 combat and plus 1 damage. And like that's not necessarily very good when you compare it to like, I don't know, uh, something like Timeborn Brand or something. But I don't know. At the same time, like they're not supposed to be good at fighting. Right. Yeah. Like that's that's still a good playable card for Seekers. You know, it's just not yeah. as ridiculous. Right. So I don't know. That, that, that was the solution I went with because I couldn't find a one that was tighter or more elegant. So, yeah. Um, well, let's move on to the ultimatum of Yis, which says investigator decks may not include key of Yis on easy, standard or hard difficulties. So it's just a straight up bandit on everything except for expert. Uh, which is a little bit strong and people gave me some kickback on this too, because key of yes is in theory designed in a vacuum to, uh, you know, you can put horror on it to boost all four of your stats, but then, uh, every time you take horror, you have to put that horror on it. And then once it maxes out on horror, it bends the top 10 cards of your deck. Yeah. It's supposed to be like a very brief, like very powerful moment. And then, you don't have enough things to put it on and then you know you just have to kind of deal with it being more of a fleeting super powerful moment yeah right i mean with key of ease i i don't know if the card itself is the problem but it's like combat with any if you have any type of horror soak like peter then you can just completely avoid you can like put it up to three sanity and basically not have to worry about uh incrementing it up you know the the kickback that i got on it was well, what if you just errata it so that you cannot use other soaks to mm. put horror on? Like it, and that that would be an option. But I still think it's almost so powerful of a card that if you can still find a way to mitigate the downside at least a little bit, then it's still busted. Uh, and part of the logic just comes from the math, right? I I almost think in the other direction. I think that if you made it so that you couldn't use something like Peter to just put all the horror on that once you have a good amount of horror on the KVs. I almost think that it just wouldn't be worth the five XP anymore and people wouldn't play it. Yeah. Because like you're not, you're not putting that much XP and money into this so that you can occasionally get this unpredictable burst of high stats. Sometimes you're doing it because you know that you can get this consistently for the rest of the game. And that's just like crazy. Yeah. I don't know. I, I'm thinking of someone like Yorick with dodges and he still might be able to keep yeast on the table long enough. And then after he kills another guy, he can bring it back. And yeah, that that's true. And and if you specifically just restricted, like you can't play this and Peter at the same time, then it's open that something else could be printed that does provides a similar benefit. Yeah, and, that's true. Yeah. Teddy, teddy bears. Sure. Yeah. Well, but the, but those take up the same slot though. That's the thing about the elder sign amulet and the teddy bear. Okay, you can get, you can get the rare, rarely used relic. Yeah, you need so, relic yeah, yeah. I mean, at this point, if you're playing that many cards to get the key of these, it starts to become like a good benefit, but no longer right. as ridiculous. But yeah, that's, that's kind of true. Yeah, I think um, just the fact that, like, it's not like Dark Horse or Crystalline Elder Sign where it's going to give you plus one to all your stats. It's not even better by those, better than those because it gives you plus two. It's it's going to give you, like, plus three. I think most of the time you're going to have to enable it to <laughs> do that. You said it was a whole Jenny in stats. Just throw the investigator on the card and that that's what it is. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it, I So I just thought math-wise, like, in, this is a game where, like, if you have a two in a stat... It's garbage. If you have a four in a stat, like you're you're doing good, and five is like, holy crap, you're godly. 
So right. knowing that you can get like a stat line of like six five six eight is stupid right. to me. Right. So yeah. I don't know. And I like that you left it open for expert where there is like a minus eight in the bag, and having a key of these online is like good, but it's it almost just maybe lets you. It just you're not a god. You're just maybe able to survive if you have this on, giving you like plus three. It's like you're playing on standard at that point, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Uh, Yeah. So, yeah, it's the kind of thing where like it can really change the course of the game depending on if you draw it turn three or turn fifteen. Right. So if you don't see it, like your deck kind of sucks, and if you see it really early, like it's going to be a breeze, and Mm. that doesn't seem very Arkham like to me. So that was that was my argument, but I can also see like a lot of these other suggestions that you've made too, Dan. So. No, I mean, I, I think I think your way of doing it is pretty good. I think it's totally fair to just say you can only play it on Expert. It's like an Expert mode card. Right, so. right. So then I have two more cards on my list, I think, that I think are very powerful. But if if you were going to, like, use some of these ultimatums and not the rest, I would suggest doing all the ones we've talked about. And then maybe optionally you could do these next two. Mm. So I have Ultimatum of the Deep. No more than one investigator in a group may contain copies of Delve Too Deep on easy and standard difficulties, and no more than two investigators in a group may contain copies of Delve Too Deep on hard difficulty. Uh, and then there's no restriction sure. for expert. So, uh, what do you what do you guys think about Delve Too Deep? Like, it's fun, it's cool. If you're doing Dunwich, I think it's great. If you have four investigators and they all have delves on their deck, then you're getting like three XP from a scenario, and then like six or seven from delves. Which is like, I don't know. I think it kind of trivializes the last half of a campaign once you start stacking those a lot. Yeah, uh, Dunwich like is very XP light, so like having delves added in just kind of gets it so you can get your deck up to like forty five ish by the end. But in like Carcosa and Forgotten Age, like we usually play with delves. Like on our usually on our first playthrough, we play with them, and it's very easy to get a lot of them up and get your deck up to like, oh, uh, I have so much XP in my deck, uh, I don't actually have anything else to buy. My deck is just so good. It's very easy to cast roll through this. So I guess I get five more charismas. I do like with Delve that it's kind of self-limiting in a way, and that if you're trying to play like eight Delves in a scenario, even if you're doing really, really great, that's going to be pretty challenging, I think. But it, it definitely, if you're in a good enough spot that you can already play eight Delves, it means that something's already kind of going wrong and that you're right. already kind of doing too well. So the last thing you need is like even more XP. Right. And I don't know. I Some people complain that like you can do the thing where you move to the resign location, play a delve too deep and then resign. Exactly. Yep. My, I I didn't want to address that situation because to me, that's like the tactics of like, when do we, when can we afford this extra action to play it? And, um, you know, sometimes you aren't able to do that. Sometimes you can't resign. So to me, that's like the skill of the card is determining when to play it. And I don't really want to restrict the power level in that regard. So instead I just said, well, delves are fine, but you you can't just have a party full of of delves because that's when it gets out of hand. But what do you guys think about that? Yeah, that's feasible. I mean, uh, one aspect of delve that I do like in general is if you get it like very early in the game, you know, you might might casually mention like, you know, I have a card that I might want to play. <laughs> <laughs> and there, there's often things in the often things in the game that will make you like discard stuff from your hand. So it's not like you can always you're always like tempted to like try to play it as soon as like like oh this is like a decent opportunity to play it right guys there's not that many monsters on the board <laughs> it's it's fine if I play this right now right uh so. right yeah exactly and and it doesn't have any icons on it so it probably just sits in your hand uh, you know it's not like you can really do anything else with it so it's like something if you get it early on it is a card that's kind of can up the stakes a lot more 
But if you get it later on in the scenario, there's usually like a, a good time you can play it. Like, oh, we're about to win. You know, we'll slip this in quick and then resign or grab the last clue or whatever. So. So then the last one I have is the Ubiquitous Blade Ultimatum. Investigator decks may not include <laughs> Machete during the first scenario of a campaign on Azian Standard. So this is talking about Machete and whether or not it's a balanced card or if it's efficient or too efficient. Is it just an auto-include, like a lucky or unexpected courage, or you know, is it actually worse than that? And uh, I don't know. Like Guardians kind of need something that they can do consistently. You know, do you rework machetes so it can only do the damage once per round? Someone would suggest that. I, I saw someone suggest that machete would like be a totally fair like one or two XP card. So mm. I kind of just did that. And I think if you if you're the kind of person who is against machete and you want the open deck building of like yeah sometimes my Roland needs a Kukri then <laughs> then yeah you could then you don't play without machete the first scenario and then you can buy it for one XP or save up for forty fives and two XP or yeah yeah do whatever you want you know but the, I, rather than totally rework machete I just said uh, I'll make it cost one XP. Except for Skids, who gets too adaptable. That's that's fine. Skids, Skids can take that. <laughs> Skids know. is fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Or or Larry. Yeah, we compare, compare use Machete a lot as like the baseline for comparing other weapons, and it's just because like its restriction is pretty easy to avoid and work around. So early on, it's just like uh, a weapon that you can always just attack with uh, and do two damage, which is very efficient. Which is why it makes it auto include and why we compare a lot of other weapons to it. Uh, as a baseline yeah this one definitely i mean i think that machete as a card i think is pretty well designed because it does have the drawback to it you do often have to like engage something waste an action to do that in order to get the extra damage so it's not like the card is way way too good it's just that it kind of covers most of the use cases that you need and it really does crowd out a lot of the other possible weapons so i think this one's cool too um just to get you to think a little bit harder about if there's other things that you could play instead yeah i agree i agree uh forgotten age sort of helps balance the machete in the opposite direction where they made a lot of three health enemies. Yes. Mm. So it becomes like, you know, your seeker draws a snake man who has three health. And so then your, uh, you know, Mark or Yorick has to engage, hit him once and then hit him twice. And that takes us entire right, turn. Right, right. So like, you know, that helps balance it out too. Obviously there's uh dumb witch monsters that aren't good, that like particularly counter melee weapons. Mm, yeah, yeah. I don't know if I like that because then how am I ever going to play my trench knife? <laughs> you know, now it's even worse. But I don't know. Yeah, it's yeah. definitely the least offender on this list. So yeah, if like the designers have to like design scenarios or whatever with keeping in mind like oh this is a card they're always going to have so we have to have ways to counter it a lot. That sort of to me means like oh maybe maybe that card is a little bit too good. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's a that's a good way to think about it. I would almost like Machete to have been something like if you have a free hand, then you can do two damage, maybe, or I don't know that you could play around that too, right? Maybe yeah. like extra damage once per turn. So like the first the first attack you make each turn, you can do an extra damage or you exhaust it. I don't know. It hacks extra clean and then it's bloody and gross, so it doesn't hack as good <laughs> or something. Right. Right. Yeah. I don't know. But yeah. Um, the last part. The last part of my article uh, just talks about how to implement the ultimatums. Because if you're playing solo, then sweet, you just do it, and then you're happy. Um, but if you're like playing with a play group, uh, 
you know, how do you get those other people on, uh, on board? And if you're interested in more of that, I would just say, you know, click on the link, check out the, the article. Yeah, it's definitely, it's, it's a really good article and we'll, we'll link to it in the, um, the show notes and stuff. So definitely check that out. Yeah. Uh, so I have a question for you guys. Uh, these were seven cards that I targeted, but like, are there any cards in the game that you think maybe need some kind of nerf or some kind of tweak? Like, do you have any ultimatums of your own? I'm I'm glad you asked, Graham. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think, uh, yeah, I, I really like this idea of um, just sort of trying to open up some new possibilities by changing the rules a little bit. And um, in particular, so one thing that I've been thinking of is kind of the opposite of the ultimatums to make cards that are already good, maybe a little bit less obvious choices. There's some investigators that I would kind of like to play, but I just feel like they're not quite where they would need to be mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, being like really making like a good deck that's going to get through the scenarios. So I'd kind of like to do something like, um, I know that this is given that we just spent a lot of time talking about how good seeker cards are. It seems kind of weird to say, let's make one of the seekers a little bit better, but I kind of like minty pan as an idea of like a support seeker. That's really good at committing cards. But I think that what holds her back is her weakness is really, really nasty and hard to deal with. Yeah. And her, like the fun part of Min, I think honestly is her signature card, um, analytical mind, which lets you commit cards like remotely to people who aren't at your location. Mm -hmm. I think that's really cool, but because it's anchored to the signature card that you only have one copy of a lot of times you won't find it or you'll find it too late. Right. Yeah. So what I would kind of like to do would be like to do I I don't have a cool name for it, but ultimatum of min being better or something <laughs> right. would be, I would basically take min and I would just ultimatum swap of min maxing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There you go. Min. Also, also a reference to a very famous Netrunner deck. Um, no. So yes. yeah, I would no. <laughs> ha, ben, Ben, you yeah. fell into the trap. Uh, uh, there was a, there was a Netrunner deck called min max, which played a uh, cyber investigator named max and was made by a guy named min. So uh, uh, there you go. Uh, um, but anyway, so I would basically swap the ability on analytical mind with the ability that's on her investigator card. I would make it so that she can always, I would say you may commit cards to investigators doing skill tests at any location. The first time each turn you commit a card to another investigator's skill test, draw a card. That's cool. And then I would have analytical mind just do something like when you commit a card, it gains an extra question mark symbol like the first time each turn or something. So uh, I just think that that way would be a lot more fun. You'd play a min deck where you play a lot of skill cards. You, You basically draw a lot of cards and commit them to people and you help them do things. I think that'd be cool. And then for um, the, for her weakness, the Yellow King, I don't really have a good idea for how to do this, but it's very difficult to get rid of. And it really, you have to play around it to kind of a huge extent. So I would try to make that somehow a little bit less punishing, probably. Yeah, I don't, I'm, I'm trying to think of like how you would make that weakness, like maybe not so crippling. The thing is that it usually takes a couple turns to like build up the hand that you need because you have to commit at least three cards to get at least six icons towards a test. Right. That's what gets yeah. sort of the weakness. Yeah, yeah. And it takes up a hand slot, so it trashes your newspaper. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and it's also with the with me changing with me swapping her signature ability with her investigator ability, you don't get the extra question mark by default anymore, so that would make it even harder to deal with the yeah, yellow king yeah, yeah. unless it's changed somehow. Gets a good point. Yeah, man, I don't know. I think I would maybe restrict it to like she can't commit cards to other people's skill tests and then she has to get just like a blanket four or five icons total to get rid of it. Not really have the card restriction. Sure, sure. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. Something like that, because it really does like put a hard stop on what Min is 
supposed to be really good at, and then you just it's like you don't get to play for a couple turns, which just kind of feel bad. Yeah, and I I think just in just in general, I this was actually something that I kind of wanted them to do in Netrunner too. I always thought it would be a cool idea if they would like take um take you know runner ability, runners or corpse that didn't really get played very much and maybe like tweak the influence a little bit just to make them more viable mm-hmm. so it, just in general i think that's cool like uh other investigators that maybe don't see a huge amount of play or that are a little bit further down the the list i'd love to see just kind of like little boost to make them like oh yeah now i could make a fun jenny deck or min deck or something like that yeah uh what, what about you guys you guys have uh ideas for ultimatums uh, I was thinking about, I know he's, he's one of your favorite investigators, but, uh, Mark, I think he, he's, he's, he's really strong. Yeah. Hell yeah, dude. Yeah. <laughs> How strong is he, Ben? He's <laughs> really strong. Like, uh, he, if he wanted to, he, he could probably lift a bear like with his bare hands. Uh, yeah. I would say he probably like, has bear lifting strength. <laughs> bear level lifting strength. Uh, mm-hmm. I gotta say though, if you just got your information from like the Reddit or the Facebook group or whatever, you might have a very different idea about Mark though. I think that people kind of underestimate him. Yeah. I, I think that, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe you just, you just figured out like how to make him run really, really cleanly, but you can definitely use a combination of cards, uh, like with first aid and beat cops. Uh, and I don't know you have a couple other healing cards where he can like maintain his healing and then just constantly be able to use Sophie like all the time. Yeah. Yep. And never. Yeah. Like if you're, if you're playing, if you're playing Mark really well, you pretty much would never have to flip Sophie Ever. and you can yeah. use his ability all the time whenever you need it. And you draw a million cards and it's really, really good. Like probably too good. And his weakness, not even to mention, yeah. is like basically non-existent if you're keeping him unless, unless you've somehow accidentally accumulated too much. Uh, but <laughs> yep. Yeah. It, it's just like, he, he's very good. I always, when you play him, I'm always like amazed. Like, oh, uh, oh, you passed every test and oh, you have, you drew your card. How many cards do you have in your hand? Oh, <laughs> yep. all right. Uh, oh, it, oh, everything fully healed, huh? Wow. Yep, all, right. all of them. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, and then when a when a big enemy does come out, you always have either like a monster slayer or like an upgraded vicious blow, and you always just like one hit kill. Stuff and you home you really... front. It's like, oh, I have a card that. Uh, or your home front and <laughs> plus four to yeah. attack, and it heals me and damages the monster more. Cool. <laughs> yep. So, so I have a theory. I have a theory about Mark, and that was they designed shell shock so that like before they put uh, the backside of Sophie on, so like. Oh. The idea is that you would just accumulate a bunch of damage and then you would just like keep yourself above water, like maybe at like three or two health left. Yeah. And then Shellshock would come into play and, oh no, I just took three or four horror. Like that's terrible. <laughs> but then they put the thing on Sophie. So now if he has five or less health, he gets minus one to all of his stance. Right. So you just do the same tread water thing, but way high up on Mark's health scale. Yeah. So yeah. then Shellshock is almost blank. It's like, oops, I took a horror. Dang. Yeah, I I think that if there just weren't if there weren't like a lot of pretty good cards in the game that can pretty easily heal damage, then Mark would be way worse. But there are those cards. <laughs> exactly. So. so in terms of like trying to come up with some type of ultimatum for him, uh, I didn't have a super concrete idea, but like I feel like tweaking him just a little bit, like making Shell Shock actually scary in some way would probably would, would be decent. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know, mm. like because right now it's based on uh, it's like every two damage for every two damage on him he takes one horror. What if you like cut that damage in in half or double it or one for one is basically what yeah like one for one might be a little bit scarier because he doesn't have great ways to deal horror he doesn't have a whole lot of sanity that much so you could be a little bit scared of that yeah yeah uh, his card draw is so insane because you can like using using like 
like beat cop yeah and some of his other abilities some other reaction stuff you can like make it so you can sophie so yes he can oh yeah sophie right he can make it so he can get like a card draw like every almost every phase uh yep. so, so it's so yeah what what if it was a instead of a horror for every two damage it was a horror for every two cards in your hand <laughs> wouldn't that be brutal uh, Oof. That well, I mean that oh. that would just straight up kill him. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It could work. It sure would. Like, yeah, just similar to like the Rex ultimatum. Like limiting it to just once per round might like throttle him down a bit, just so his card draw is not so insane. Still be bonkers. Or but yeah. the last thing I thought was like maybe you could change the threshold on Sophie a little bit. You know, maybe instead of her flipping over at, uh, I think she flips over when you take five damage. You know, maybe even just like. Reducing it so it's like if you're oh you've taken four damage you have to flip over that might take away some of the wiggle room mm. uh, that he has right now because I know there's definitely times where I at least playing with Dan where I, I see him like hovering at like three or four damage for a little while uh, yeah but then you but, just like draw your second when you're like boop okay you know <laughs> yeah so it's yeah <laughs> so maybe that maybe that wouldn't work as well and I guess if you're not running like depending on like what type of mark deck you're doing because Dan definitely does like tries to make it as efficient as possible draw all the cards uh deck but there's other, there's definitely other variants of mark you could do and our end is very focused on fighting if you needed to be playing like a solo or two player like maybe you have to get clues for some reason on mark maybe he's not quite as crazy but yeah i mean i'm i'm always i'm always playing him as like a pure murdering machine but also with a couple of like i can heal other people and i can play stand togethers but it's mostly i'm not getting any clues so so that something to self shock. I, I like I like the number of cards at hand <laughs> idea because then you're like scared of two because it's an op, it's optional to you know draw that card. So that makes yeah. making you a little bit scared of taking that damage a little bit would maybe maybe good. No, it's not. <laughs> if you don't if you don't draw that card, you're a coward. <laughs> like right? like come on, let's let's be real here for a sec. You're not not drawing that card. I don't know. You spend yeah. some XP on like elder sign amulets, and so it's just like, oh, I better get down one of my elder signs so that yeah. I don't yeah. care about shell shock and keep doing all the stupid mark stuff I'm doing. Or I've had worse. I've yeah, had yeah. worse. Yeah, I think uh, I, I think some combination of these ideas definitely would be would be pretty fair. He really is like again. I know that people don't. I, people are playing like flamethrower Leo or something, and like, hey, go with God. That's fine. But, uh, <laughs> Mark is Mark is like legit ridiculous and yeah. yes. probably is way too good. So. I agree. Too. Yeah, I agree. he yeah. he yeah. basically has two investigator abilities. One is Sophie, and one is you get to take a, a draw every turn. And they're just yeah. they're both bonkers. And he's got he's got a uh, the home front. Yeah. Yep. It's pretty good. Which is a four. It's four combat on one card, and yeah. it heals it. Having having it's, it's insane. Three vicious blows in your deck, and one of them heals you is pretty good. But it's really <laughs> like the, I want to emphasize again the number one thing that makes him so good. I mean, having five strength we didn't even mention, but that's really good too. Right? Yeah, yeah. But like the number one thing that makes him so good is literally just drawing so many cards because yes. you can just do so much in this game if you always have a card to commit when you need it, and you always find your stuff that you need to like play and use. That's really what makes him so ridiculously good. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Cool. What about uh, what about you, Dan? Did you come up with a cool ultimatum? Yeah. So mine weren't like referencing any specific investigator, rather like a pool of cards. So since the beginning of the game, like much more apparently in the beginning of the game, when the core set came out, there were cards that were included that basically can go into any investigator's deck, uh, and they there's almost no downside to playing them. I think um, 
they are the uh, the cycle of skill cards that come from the first uh, from the core set. So that's guts, manual dexterity, overpower, perception, and unexpected Ooh, courage. Ooh, hot um, takes. So mm. these are all cards that I always feel. I mean, like Dan and I, I remember evaluating the card pool when we first started playing the game, and we were like, uh, "Well." First time we played through the gathering and stuff like that, and even through Dunwich, um, there's just so much that has to do with will, where you'll take horror if you fail will tests, and you'll take damage if you fail uh, uh, agility tests. So always just jam two guts and two manual dexterities at all times, because there's no reason not to. Also unexpected courage, because it's just really good. It's just really versatile. And so I think a way to limit like how many of these you can put in your deck might be reasonable. So I called it the ultimate of broken foundations. Uh, limit one of each of these, unless you take two of one of them. Um, so like if you're a fighter, you can take two overpowers, but you don't get to take guts, manual dexterity, perception, or unexpected courage. Interesting. Mm. Or or you can just put one of all of them in your deck. Because a lot of the time I find like I build a an entire deck and I'll sit there and I'll be like, but I don't have these cards in them, which are really good because they draw, they, they replace themselves, right? They kind of have a cantrip where, except for unexpected courage, of course, if the test is successful, you draw one card. So that also includes other investigators if you commit to them as well. And a lot of the time, guts kind of can, and manual dexterity can, can be applied to other investigators in the same way because they're all tackling the same encounter cards as you. So everybody's going to benefit from guts. Uh, if you give If you give two will to somebody... Uh, and then they succeed at a, uh, you know, rotting remains, uh, you get to draw a card, um, not them. So it still benefits you in the fact that it's replacing itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so really there's like, I, I just had an issue with the the amount of these that were just, uh, that you could put in a deck and it'd be fine, especially in solo play. That being said, I think that there is a caveat to where uh, survivors like, I, I like playing with these a lot with survivors, just as a flavorful kind of thing, like with a dark horse sort of thing, because... Skill cards are exactly that. They're skill, right? Like, you're you're inherently skillful. Your investigator is flavorfully inherently skillful when you're playing with them. You know, like, they're they're perceptive and they're over... They, they can, uh, you know, beat the shit out of things. And uh, man, looks, <laughs> they can they can kind of, you know, like, dodge things really easily. They, they're, they're just, like, really, really uh, adept at, at a lot of different things. Um, so I like that idea of, of... Because they don't cost anything. It's just kind of an innate sort of thing. Uh, but, you know, I think that... When I build decks, sometimes it's just a huge hamper on, well, I kind of want to play this card, but there's less of a reason to play this card than uh, like manual dexterity, for example. Sure. Yeah, I, I definitely I definitely like the idea. I kind of find that um, I think that the more cards that come out, the, the, the more the card pool grows, the less I find myself playing these cards anyway, just because yeah. there are a lot of options. Like these days, you know, often you're going to play like... Um, a logical reasoning instead of a guts, or maybe you're going to play like a, a, a get me out of here instead of a manual dexterity. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. But like, that's still, it still might be a cool ultimatum, like to kind of encourage players to look outside a little bit and, and pick new stuff. So I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. I guess it, it might be kind of tough for people like Silas who really want to play a lot of skills. Yeah. Yeah. But you kind of mentioned that and maybe, maybe saying like non survivors use this ultimatum or something like sure, that. Sure. So yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of cards that have like two icons on them and, those are like great replacements for these uh, like core cut cards. So mm-hmm. yeah, for sure, for sure. There are cards that that like uh, Dan referenced them directly. Uh, logical reasoning. A lot of the time, like if I'm playing a seeker, I'll be like, well, I don't really need guts because I could just take two logical reasonings because the kind of the auxiliary effect being the actual cards effect 
is already very good. Like healing horror is something that usually like horror usually comes from will tests anyways. It's associated with that kind of thing. Um, so you kind of have a benefit either if you play it and if not, it still commits and it's a very powerful uh, commit effect. Uh, <clears throat> I'm out of here is another is is a uh, rogue card that I usually take like a one of in rogue decks just because there are some strange circumstances where sometimes you might be across the map and there will be a resign thing. And if you're trying to escape from the place or there's not a lot of doom left, you can just kind of like leave immediately. And sometimes it feels like cheating. Uh, so I like to include one of those because it gives the same stats as manual dexterity, but uh, also gives you the 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 effect if you need it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not necessary in a deck, I guess. I feel a little bit differently. Like I do agree that those skill cards are probably some of the best skill cards, but for me, that speaks more to the power seep of how we not had a lot of great skill cards come out. Mm-hmm. Like you think of something like Eureka, which looks like a really good card. You can commit it to get an icon for most tests that you or an ally is going to take. And then whoever is getting the benefit also gets a filtered draw uh, and it's all actionless. Like, okay, yeah, that seems great. And yet I still have trouble fitting Eureka into a deck. And then you like go down the list and you're like, okay, level zero survival instinct. I get to evade two enemies instead of one. Like, uh, that's not very useful. Or inspiring presence is <laughs> maybe only okay if you have like a beat cop because it gets you to heal an ally for a single icon. And it's just like, right, right. I almost think that if it doesn't have more than one icon, it's like kind of hard to even get into a deck anyway as a skill card. So, yeah, yeah. There's kind of a strong incentive to play an event that has some value and also could be committed for a decent set of icons mm-hmm. rather than a pure skill card, which can only ever be committed just because you get the flexibility. Yeah. Uh, but I do agree that those skill cards actually will crowd out other skill cards that you would want to use because I think just generic cards, card draw is also mm, for sure. a, a pretty nice effect. And really, it's the double icons that you're playing those for, I think. so. Yeah, yeah. And like... Unexpected Courage is almost an auto-include for me. Probably 90, 95% of my decks have Courage in it, so... Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I always play two of those. Well, cool. I, I'm glad that you guys gave me such good feedback on these uh, ultimatums. And again, I know that they're not for everyone, but... Um, I don't know. I, I play with all of the ones except for the Machete one. So when if I ever use Strange Solution, you know, I'm always doing just two damage with that, and... I only use Rex's ability once per turn and that kind of stuff. And it's not really like that game breaking. It's just making sure that if I'm playing on standard and I've got the stupid newspaper min deck that I'm not being overshadowed by <laughs> someone else's key of yes, Yorick. <laughs> like that's, that's basically what it comes down to. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it, it, it's a really cool idea and it definitely, it's something that I would recommend for people to check out Graham's ultimatums. Maybe try some of the ones we suggested or make up your own. It's just a, a, you know, a way to get something new out of this game and try something a little bit different. Yeah. 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 So Graham, thanks so much for coming on and talking with us again about your ultimatums. I think that they're, again, a very interesting way to put a twist on the game. Yeah, dudes. Thanks so much for having me back on the show. This is a lot of fun. Absolutely. So everyone, be sure to check out the Pallid Cast uh podcast and uh graham's uh shiloh horror blog at uh is it shilohhorror.com.blog is that right it's shilohhorror.home.blog because i'm cheap and i use the free wordpress so <laughs> there we go no shame in that and then you can search for uh the pallet cast detective agency is the name of the podcast there we go 
yeah so everybody check those out uh give give graham some props and we'll see you guys next time sweet thanks guys and we're back that was fun uh that was an enjoyable uh little segment on coming up with ultimatums and things it's fun it's like the kind of stuff that we kind of just talk about aimlessly anyway so it's might as well uh you know make it an official name and actually start thinking about ways to use it to make the game more fun yeah it's cool to theorize about these kinds of things so guys what did you think of our ultimatums what do you think of graham's ultimatums any cool ideas for ultimatums that of your own comment wherever you listen to podcasts or email us at miskatonic university radio at gmail.com and we'll see you guys next time goodbye bye